Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and integrated well-being. Let's get to it. Here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We're talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. Well, it's that time of year again. The holidays are upon us and we are getting ready to celebrate, to give thanks, to be with friends, family, and there is not a better way to create happiness than I know of, and that is to make and share great food. And that is what we are talking about. We're talking about family traditions, food traditions, and the senses, you know, how we are touched sensually by the eating experience. And with me today is Dan Pashman. He is the James Beard Award nominated host of WYNC's Sporkful Food Podcast and the cooking channels You're Eating It Wrong, as well as the author of Eat More Better. How to Make Every Bite More Delicious. Dan is also a contributor to NPR, Slate, BuzzFeed, and LA's KCRW. Welcome, Dan. You've been with us before, and I'm glad you're coming back to to share some holiday goodness with us. Hey, Lisa. Yeah, it's great to be here. Let's talk about the tradition and connection that goes on through food, through eating, through communion and fellowship. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something that I've actually been getting more into lately with the Sporkful podcast is, you know, it's um, it, it is it is sort of a universal language, I think, that we all kind of understand. Um, I think that we can sort of, you know, like wherever I go in the country or wherever I travel, whatever show I'm doing, whatever I'm talking about, you can always bond with people over food. You can always ask them what they like to eat and they'll be very happy to tell you. Um and so, you know, no matter how different someone may seem from you or how different their food may seem from you, you know, you may think that this food comes from far away and that it's, to you, strange and different. But when you start especially talking about holidays and the way that people and families come together to celebrate holidays, 
it really kind of is the same story repeated all over the world. Maybe the ingredients change, but the role that the food plays in the gathering is pretty much always the same. It's pretty universal. And this is a little bit of a departure for you from how you've approached food in the past, in that you really are a bit of a, a scientist and a chemist uh, in the way that you look at food. And, and, and so now you're, you're looking at it from what I glean from a much more psychological perspective. Yeah, to some extent that's true. Yeah, I mean, we haven't, we haven't sort of... Uh, abandoned what I think, uh, you know, what we started off with with the sporkful and what a lot of people still love, which is this sort of uh, obsessive compulsive approach to analyzing the finer points of eating um, and eating techniques in a way that, uh, you know, sort of our never-ending pursuit for deliciousness. But we have sort of broadened the horizons of the show a bit. And, um, you know, for instance, uh, recently it was the Hindu holiday of Diwali, um, so we went, I went to Queens and I interviewed this Trinidadian woman who is Hindu who celebrates Diwali and cooked with her and learned about what she eats and cooks on that holiday. Um, that was really cool. Uh, we did a show for Ramadan where I went and uh, met up with a bunch of like Muslim cab drivers and, and was riding around cabs all over New York City and after JFK Airport as the sun was going down and they were all breaking their Ramadan fast for the day. Um, and that kind of stuff has been really fun too. So we haven't abandon what we were doing in the beginning, but, um, but we're, we're definitely broadening the scope a bit. And for those who don't know what Diwali is, it is the Hindu festival of lights. So this celebration is very colorful, very rich culturally, and in terms of food, it's out of sight, right? It's off the charts. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I, I, I've been, not that I pretend to be an innovator, because I mean, you know, there's over a billion people who, out there who really love Indian food. Um, but I've been getting more and more into Indian food, and there's just so much to explore there, and so many different regional varieties. Um, that, you know, so many different dishes that go beyond the sort of the handful of, of ones that have broken through into the American cultural mainstream so far. And yeah, Diwali is delicious. It, it's it's particularly a holiday that's known for sweets, uh, and they make some delicious, amazing sweets that go great with coffee. And a lot of them have sort of like ground lentils, ground. Uh, chickpeas with sugar and, you know, very interesting textures, you know, stuff that's definitely different from some of the stuff I grew up eating. But, I, you know, to me, that's part of the fun. And that's sort of like one of the perks of the job is getting to eat new things all the time and experience new flavors. Major perk. And then in terms of Ramadan, I would say because the Muslim world has uh, a very large reach that the culinary um, delights there are pretty fascinating, right? Yeah, I mean, and one of the things I learned in that show is that actually, really, there are not many foods that are considered the traditional foods for Ramadan. It's really, really a lot of the show is about fasting. You know, with Ramadan, Muslims fast from sunrise to sunset. Um, because of the way the Muslim calendar works, Ramadan falls at different times of year um, on different years. It sort of rotates around the calendar. So right now, in this past year, Ramadan was falling in June around the longest day of the year. So if, if fasting is from sunrise to sunset on the longest day of the year for 30 straight days, um, it is intense. Yeah. And so a lot of what, what we learned about in that show was sort of the way that, that going through that difficult uh, experience brings Muslims of different backgrounds together and brings families together. I interviewed some Muslim teenagers in New York about... They talked about how, like, during Ramadan, their parents 
don't yell at them as much and they have no curfew. They can go out as late as they want because they're, <laughs> they sleep half the day. And so, you know, it's kind of this special time for them where the rules get relaxed and um, they love it for that reason. And, um, you know, so, so it, it, it's interesting, though, whether I'm talking to Muslims about Ramadan or, or Hindus about Diwali or just good old, you know, white people in America, uh, as opposed to all the, the other wonderful kinds of people in America, like you talk about holidays, whether it's Thanksgiving or Diwali or Ramadan. And at the end of the day, it's really about people coming together and sitting together, families coming together um, and sharing a meal. And that's like such a universal story. And, you know, I think we're really talking about ritual, that, you know, in, in that ritual meal, there is a sacred space created in addition to these foods that are, you know, delicious and um, fulfilling and colorful. There's something about that communal process that strikes all these emotional chords that, that, that we've spoken of. Absolutely. I think that's totally right. I mean, I think that one of the things that I've found frustrating about the way food media has increasingly covers Thanksgiving, and this is kind of a larger issue with just the amount of media out there in the world, but there's, there's so much content out there that the only way that people can distinguish themselves is to say something different from what everyone else is saying. And that creates a pressure to constantly be saying, you know, in the food world, that creates a pressure to constantly be coming up with new foods and new recipes, new, you know, here are six hot appetizers um, or whatever it is. And um, I think that creates a lot of undue anxiety for people. Like it makes people think like, oh, God, I have to – I guess I have to do something different from what I did last year at Thanksgiving because all these stupid websites are telling me that there are six new appetizers I need to, <laughs> to learn. You know, and, and, and people – and it makes people feel like inadequate. Like, oh, I guess I can't just cook the same thing I did last year. But like there is a real power in those rituals and in and – in, Having those foods, especially in the giant turkey, which doesn't get made very often, or stuffing, you know, a lot of the foods you eat at Thanksgiving, you don't eat very often either because they're complicated and time-consuming to make, or maybe it's a specialty of a, of a loved one or relative who you only get to see a couple times a year, and so, you know, you just, you love Aunt Patty's candied yams, and, and they're never as good when anyone else makes them, and having that sense memory of, eating that the same food every year with the same people at the same time to me is very beautiful and very powerful. And I would encourage people to, um, you know, to stick with those traditions when they feel good to you and not to feel like, uh, just because there's some listicle on the internet that suggests there's something new out there that you need to be, you know, chasing down that rabbit hole. And in terms of the sense memory, one of one of the interesting points that comes to my mind as you're as you're sharing this is in positive psychology, the recalling of positive emotion or memory can help actually change our mood in the present. So if if someone is having a hard time, let's say during the holidays, maybe there's the absence of family, maybe they're in another part of the world, or maybe that member is no longer um, here. That that recalling of the memory and the rituals. The sights, the scents, the, 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 you know, the, the smells, the textures, the sounds of these rituals can be a way for us to really focus and become more joyful when things may be a little bit challenging. Absolutely. You know, this happened, it's funny, it happened with me, uh, with my wife just the other day. Um, I've recently discovered this, this sauce called Maggie sauce. 
Um, it's it's it, there's different varieties around the world. I, like I know Maggie. Okay. <laughs> it, it's like changed my life. I tell my kids it's called magic sauce. And I just try to put it in everything. And it's amazing. Um, and um, my wife had made this cauliflower soup that she grew up eating, that her mom made, that her grandmother made. And she made this cauliflower soup. And I had this Maggie sauce lying around the house. And she was heating up some leftovers. And she grabbed the Maggie sauce and sprinkled some into the cauliflower and stirred it around. And she was like, oh, my God, I'm having this powerful memory, and I'm just remembering. Because her, her uh, parents and grandparents are uh, immigrants from Eastern Europe, and where Maggie's sauce is very popular. And she said, I'm, I'm just having this memory that I'm remembering that when my grandmother made this soup, she would sprinkle a little Maggie sauce uh. on the top and mix it around. And her, my, her, her, my wife's mother didn't do that because they have a kosher home, and Maggie's sauce isn't kosher, but... The grandmother's home wasn't kosher, so they, they did it with Maggie sauce. And uh, we sprink, she sprinkled this, and she said it was so powerful, and it reminded her of her grandparents, you know. And um, it is amazing the way that, you know, a smell or a taste can do that for you. Marcel Proust wrote about that with Madeleine's. You know, huh. that, the, that, 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 he, that the taste or the smell and the taste of the Madeleines evoked some memory of his grandmother who had baked these incredible scrumptious buttery cookies for him. But that is another point. We're going to go to a break. And for those who are not in the know, and Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, that Maggie, it's like in a little shaker bottle and it's yellow and red or, or reddish orange, tomato red. And you shake, you shake it, right? It's like a yeah. dropper. Yeah, it's like a dropper, um, right? It comes in. I actually managed to find the huge industrial size bottle because I love it so much. But yeah, you can find it online. You can find it at any kind of store. Uh, they have there's one kind of Maggie that's made in China. There's one that's made in Germany. There's one that's made in South America, and they're all pretty different from each other. But you can order them online and check them out. It has MSG in it, which I happen to love and think that it's deli- You know, I'm a big proponent of MSG. Um, <laughs> Not the headache though. Well, well, uh, Lisa, the science on on uh, on that is dubious at best. Oh, uh, really? There's, oh. Yes, there's a, there's a perception that ma- that MSG causes this headache, but the actual research is very questionable. And uh, you know, it certainly it's used very, very widely in in Asian in Asia without any ill effect. So I think that maybe it's more an issue. My personal speculative theory is that it's an issue of of when it's used too heavily. Maybe it gives certain people headaches, but I think it's also somewhat psychosomatic and somewhat like used in moderation. It's okay. But anyway. Maybe maybe a little magical thinking sprinkled in there. We're going to go to a break. And to (laughs) learn more about the fabulous work of Dan Pashman, you can go to Sporkful.com. On Facebook, that page is Sporkful. And guess what? On Twitter, he can be found at The Sporkful. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Harvest more happiness by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Love to read? Looking to harvest your happiness? 
then look no further. Lisa Cypress Kamen is an author of three amazing books that will assist in taking your well-being and self-mastery to the next level. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life offers breakthrough strategies for creating your own personal happiness revolution. Perspectives on addiction and integrated journey to wellness is an overview of the recovery process from a multi-stepped perspective and holistic approach of substance abuse and lifestyle management. Through her third book, Reintegration Strategies for Depression, Anxiety, Anger, Grief, and Post-Traumatic Stress, offers an own nonsense approach to dealing with post-combat civilian life reintegration issues for veterans and their families. You'll find these books online at Amazon.com and HarvestingHappiness.com. Saturday afternoons on 97.5. Joy riding the coast with a global vibe, pleasing your ears and inspiring your mind. Quem mostrava esse caminho longe? Quem mostrava esse caminho longe? Esse caminho passando bem. Joy riding the coast with me, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Saturdays 2 to 5 on 97.5. KBU and RadioMalibu.net. Mindful meditative moments are free and relaxing on-the-spot mini staycation journeys designed to calm the mind and soothe the body from the comfort of wherever you are. No reservations or travel required. Check out the playlists on HarvestingHappiness.com and Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes and SoundCloud. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen, the show dedicated to promoting happiness from the inside out by thriving with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. So let's get back to the show and your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about the holiday feast and about enjoying our food and our company from a very sensual perspective, that it's not only about the food and not only about the company, but the ways in which we engage in our rituals through through taste, through sound, through sight, and, well, imagination. And with me is Dan Pashman. He is the host of the Sporkful podcast at WNYC and the Cooking Channel show entitled You're Eating It Wrong, and also he's got a great book out called Eat More Better, How to Make Every Bite More Delicious, and he is truly the master of deliciousness. So, Dan, we were talking about all these different cultural experiences that you have through the show and the melange of flavors and products that people use in their cooking. I want to talk about how we, as the melting pot of the world, can own our holiday experience and rock it through our own ethnicities and different flavors and make it more meaningful than just the ubiquitous, you know, reindeer and Santa Claus. Yeah. I mean, and this is something that, that we, that I learned a lot about and putting together. We did a two part Sporkful podcast uh, Thanksgiving special that airs. Um, it's going to go up the week or maybe is already up. Uh, it's the, it comes out the week before Thanksgiving and you know, we asked all of our listeners, how do you know it's Thanksgiving in your home? 
And I was so struck by just the variety and the diversity of the responses. And we had a Puerto Rican guy in Kansas City call in and say he, you know, he can smell uh, turkey that's stuffed with uh, mofongo. And the, the plantains are cooking right next to the turkey. We had a woman whose you know, family, was, her parents are from India, but she was born in Zambia. And they came to America. They had never seen a turkey. They, they had no idea how to cook something so big. So they started their first Thanksgiving, they just had chicken because they were too intimidated <laughs> by turkey. But they still seasoned it with a lot of Indian-style spices. Um, and I think that that's so cool. And look, you know, I think that that... that People say, well, "What is American food?" I mean, to me, that's American food. You know, it, it's it's uh, you know, in a sort of this is kind of may sound like an odd analogy, but like I've been thinking a lot about lately about the way that foods come to America and are assimilated into food culture, and then eventually are co opted and 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 blended. Like, I, you know, my family was Jewish; they came from Eastern Europe, so like my ancestors brought bagels with them. And now on St. Patrick's Day, an Irish holiday, many bagel stores will dye the bagels green. Yep. <laughs> which, like, you know, is a little weird, but, and, and probably not how my ancestors envisioned bagels, but, like, I think it's really cool. Like, here you have this one, you know, these two immigrant customs that have been mashed up in this kind of quirky, fun way. Where else would you find green bagels? Where else in the world but in America? So I think the holidays are a great time for those kinds of of uh, cultural mashups and uh, and I you know I, I think that kind of thing is going to continue as as more people from different parts of the world c- come and and as their their approaches to food are welcomed and become more a part of the cultural mainstream and are assimilated. I think you're going to see more and more of these uh, food media pieces that are going to come out every Thanksgiving are going to be about like here's how to make an Indian style roast turkey. Here's how to make or here, it'll be and then after that it'll be here's how to make a Punjabi a Punjabi roast turkey versus a Gujarati roast turkey. Um, and you're gonna, you know, and it won't just be here's an Asian style roast turkey. It'll be here's a Vietnamese roast turkey and here's a uh, Chinese versus Japanese versus South Korean versus North Korea. Like we can cover it all and there's so many variations and I think it's all great. So like instead of Peking duck, you know, you can get like Peking turkey. Oh yeah, that'd be great. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. Sizzle that skin. <laughs> totally, oh my God, yeah. That'd be really good. We've got a challenge in my house. My, you know, my my house. For those of you who don't know, as as is Dan's house, is a house of foodies. Like we like to eat, and my kids are quite creative in the kitchen. So we've got a challenge on for this Thanksgiving to make turkey tamales with the leftovers. Now, none of us know how to do this, but we went to our local like like burrito stand where they make like tamales as well and we asked the cooks you know we said like what do you do and they gave us tips for how to do this and this is exactly what you're talking about you know it's how the hybrid becomes normalized in cooking culture and this is what makes this country so great one of zillions of things but the food thing is 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 on for me absolutely no i mean that's food food leads the way i mean i think that there are a lot of people in america uh, like certainly when I, when I was growing up, we didn't really have Korean and Vietnamese restaurants. We mostly had Chinese and Japanese. And, you know, I think that, for, but for a lot of people, I think there are a lot of people in America who probably eat some kind of, who, who, who've spent more, t- like their first or their predominant interaction with an immigrant culture is through the food. Yeah. 
Like there are a lot of people in America who don't know very many Chinese immigrants, but they know Chinese food. Now, look, is the Chinese food those people are probably eating the most authentic, quote unquote, Chinese food? Probably not. But it is still their experience of that food. And they probably like it a lot. And, you know, I, do, I am a believer that even if, even if it's not the most authentic food, uh, it's, it's still an entry point. Like it's an entry point to a new culture and it breaks down barriers between people and it, it creates a level of familiarity or common ground that maybe wasn't there before. And, you know, you, you talk about growing up in a Jewish home. I, too, uh, grew up in a Jewish home. And I still believe that Sunday night dinner is Chinese food. <laughs> you know, totally. that's, a cult- that's a cultural thing. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, you, you, t- you talk about um, sound in some of your upcoming shows. Let's talk about how sound affects the cooking and eating process, because this is an interesting angle. Yeah, I mean, this is something where we're working on a future episode of the Sporkful podcast about this. Um, we talked, it's going to be partly about the sounds that your foods make when you cook them, and partly about the sounds that your foods make when you eat them, and partly about how the sounds around you affect the eating process. But all of these things are tied together. Um, there's been a lot of really interesting research lately about how. Um, you know, eating, eating is a holistic experience, and people just talk about taste. They talk about your tongue. I think that, you know, most of us have some basic understanding that smell is a big part of taste. Like you have a, if you have a cold, you don't taste things as well because your nose is stuffed. But it, it actually we're learning now it goes much beyond that, um, that things like the color of the plates can affect how you perceive the food. The music that's being played, when music is very loud in the background, it uh, it dulls your taste, your, your your flavor perception, because you are inclined. Because it's like your brain can't process. Your brain is distracted by the noise and can't focus on the the flavor. Um, wow. Yeah, you know, and even like um, there's this guy Charles Spence in England. This researcher, he has found that um, when when low pitched music is when low pitched sort of tonal ambient music is is pitched is piped in. Uh, food you eat will taste more bitter. And when high-pitched music is piped in, then food you eat will taste more sweet. And so really you're, you're, the experience of eating is a, is a multi-sensory experience in, in a way that we're only still just starting to fully understand. So what I think I hear you saying is that when we're sitting around the table and we might have smooth jazz, for example, playing you know low in the background or classical music versus... Um, house music or disco, that the how we taste, how we perceive that food is altered. That's right. That's exactly right. That's really cool. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Crazy. And what about lighting? What about if you're sitting in a room with people with whom you feel very connected and resonant, and maybe it's family, but you're not feeling so. Maybe there's a little bit of, you know, contentious energy in the room. How does that affect the eating experience? I mean, I can guess, but, you know, you're the expert here. Right. Well, you know, to tell you the truth, I'm not, I haven't done as much study on, the, on how lighting affects things. So, I, you know, I, I can't say for sure about that, you know, but I, I, I do think that, um, you know, to some extent, you know, when you're – 
everything feeds into everything in a sense. And it's like if you're with a bunch of people and there's a lot, sort of a lot of, let's say there's some tension at the table or maybe not everyone's getting along with everyone, you know, you're probably going to be distracted. You're probably not likely to taste the food you're eating as much. If you're in a bad mood, it might not taste as good as if you're in a good mood and having a lot of fun. Um, so, you know, I, I think that all these things definitely feed into each other. We are almost out of time, and I want to kind of close out our chat about the concept of gift giving and stuff in this holiday experience, because this is something that thematically comes up every year, you know, as people race out the door and race to the mall or online to shop for things. Um, How and why is the experience the greatest gift of all? Well, I mean, you, you can, you can, I think that people who, if you, people really stop and think about what are some of the, just like, what are the things in your life that you like, think about the last few years like of your life. What are the highlights? What are the things that were most meaningful to you that brought you real lasting happiness? I think that most likely you're not going to think about a sweater, you know, uh, or a car. You, or, or uh, you know, or any real material possession, you're going to think about people, and you're going to think about life experiences. And in fact, there's a lot of research that backs this up that that life experiences provide more lasting happiness than material possessions. Um, which is why I try to to give life experiences as gifts whenever possible. There's a great organization in New York. I just gave a gift recently. There's a great organization in New York called League of Kitchens. They offer cooking classes taught by immigrants in New York City in their own homes. It's really a totally unique type of cooking class, um, unlike any other. And I gave a gift certificate to someone to take one of those classes. Um, You know, my daughter just had her fifth birthday. And so for her birthday, we use this cool website called Share Your Wish, where people, instead of giving a gift, they all contribute money. And you you take some portion of the money and you buy one big gift for your kid that they actually really will want and use instead of a lot of little junk. Um, and then most of the money, like I think we took 75 or 80% of it and you donate it to a charity. And then the kid gets a certificate that they shared their gift with other children who needed help. It teaches a good lesson and you don't end up with a bunch of clutter and junk in your house that you really didn't need that your kid's going to forget they got in two weeks. And so, yeah, I, I just think that um, life experiences are the way to go. I agree. We are out of time. It is always a pleasure to have you on the show, Dan. To learn more about Dan Pashman, please visit Sporkful.com. On Facebook, that page is Sporkful, and the Twitter handle is at the Sporkful. And once again, Dan Pashman is the host of the Sporkful podcast at WNYC, as well as the cooking channel show, You're Eating It Wrong. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Lisa. Happy holidays. Take care. Happy holidays to you. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Harvest more happiness by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness.
Remember what it feels like to receive a gift? We all know nothing gives happiness like a present, so you should unwrap yours at harvestinghappiness.com and sign up to receive your free ebook, Got Happiness Now, that offers simple, user-friendly ways to get greater happiness in your world each and every day. That's harvestinghappiness.com. Lisa Cypress Cayman has built an impressive global lifestyle management consulting company offering applied positive psychology, mindfulness, and integrated well-being coaching. Her services, including addiction and trauma recovery support, as well as life crisis triage, are available worldwide through phone, video, and on-site. In addition, Lisa delivers workshops, lectures, and trainings to corporations and institutions and is a frequent guest expert on many prominent radio and TV shows. Connect with us at Harvesting Happiness for more information. Harvesting Happiness for Heroes is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation offering innovative and integrated stigma-free combat recovery services to veterans and their loved ones with programming that focuses on the transformation of post-traumatic stress into post-traumatic growth using scientifically proven positive psychology coaching tools and strategies that increase self-mastery, self-awareness, and self-esteem to help heal the invisible wounds of war. To make a tax-free charitable contribution or to learn more, please visit visit hh4heroes.org. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, the show dedicated to promoting happiness from the inside out by thriving with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. So let's get back to the show and your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, whoa, one second. Here we go. Let's do it over. One, two, three. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because caring is sharing. It's kind, it's free, it's legal, it's available 24-7. And we're talking about holiday traditions with a twist. And my next guest is doing just that. Suzanne Cope is the author of Small Batch, Pickles, cheese, chocolate, spirits, and the return of artisanal food. And this is a really cool book. She has also written several articles and essays for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, Lucky Peach, NPR's The Salt, Edible Boston, Paste, Post Road, and on and on and on. She is awesome, educated, and I don't really want to like give all the academic stuff, but she is, she's, She's the shit. And she's also um, a foodie. She and her husband, musician Steve Mayone, live in Brooklyn, New York, as well as their toddler, Rocco. Welcome, Suzanne. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, I, I want to talk about the whole uh, sort of urban gardening and urban community that's going on in the neck of the woods where you live, because this is another aspect that we're just bringing to light on this show. We've done a couple of episodes about it, um, how we can be more in control of our food sources. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I was so lucky when we moved to Brooklyn um, from Boston a couple of years ago, I was just adamant that we, that we had to have a back, a backyard space or some sort of outdoor space because um, that's what really keeps me sane in the city. And uh, I absolutely love to spend time in our backyard. And we just, um, we just moved to a new place almost exactly a year ago. And so I just, 
I'm wrapping up or we've had such lovely weather. I haven't had to wrap it up yet, but I'm soon to wrap up my first season in our new backyard. And it's, um, you know, it's always a learning process, but it's been really great. And I, I think what's very interesting about the ur- urban gardening movement is because it, it allows people to, you know, get their hands in the soil to understand the source of where the food comes from, to have fresh, nutritious, you know, food and, and food products that are inexpensive. It's very, very cool because typically we think of, you know, farming is something that's reserved for people that are out in the country with land. Exactly. And, um, you know, I, I've met so many people who do so much with so little. I just have a small backyard. And, uh, you know, a lot of times in the city, you don't have like the great sunlight that you would have if you have this wide open field. But it's amazing what you really can grow with, um, you know, with only a couple hours of direct sunlight a, a day. And um, so I have a little community or a little garden in the back, um, some raised beds that my husband and I put in. And we had some greens and tomatoes and herbs and some peppers. Um, and then I'm also part of this community garden that's a couple blocks away. And this garden is amazing. Um, it's called 462 Halsey. Uh, I live in bed and, um, and this garden's been around for a couple years. And it's actually mostly community beds where we um, plant things as a garden. But anyone can come in during the growing season and can pick anything they'd like. And, um, you know, people are very respectful. And, and, and they're also amazed that we put in so many volunteer hours uh, just to grow things for people. And so we have a lot of greens. Um, we have peppers, tomatoes. Uh, zucchini, um, beans, all sorts of amazing things. And I'm also mostly um, active with the composting there where we, last year, we actually uh, composted over 20,000 pounds of compost. And we're um, already, we've already broken last year's, um, last year's record. So, so yeah, we do a lot in our little uh, urban, our little urban nook here in Brooklyn. In your book, Small Batch, you talk about pickles, cheese, chocolate, spirits, and the return of artisanal food. And I want to talk about how this small batch mentality, this culture ties in so nicely with the giving season. Sure. I, you know, I I definitely come from um, two different grandmothers, my, uh, my Italian American grandmother, and then my other grandmother who was, um, she was brought up in Pennsylvania and, um, has German roots, but, you know, I, I kind of call her my American grandmother. Um, and they both made different, uh, canned goods, canned as in, you know, jarred, uh, preserved goods and, um, fermented things and used the whole animal and made sausages and, and they both made it just to save money. But what is amazing is that since, we, you know, no longer really need to um, put in all that effort to feed ourselves on this daily basis because, you know, for, you know, especially for my um, my one grandmother, this was what this was her job was to feed the family um, as cheaply as possible. But, you know, of course, this is, you know, as freshly and nutritiously as possible. Um, what's been really great is this um, inspired me to think, okay, these are things that were really made with love. And they also connect me to my past and connect me to these people who I love. And, um, and so I, I started to I taught myself to can actually um i didn't learn from either of my grandmother although one is still alive just because i moved away and she sent me all her recipes so um it's something that i could do that i really love doing and it it connects me to them even though we're not physically together and um and it's it's a way to give someone something that's unique that they know you put a lot of time and energy into um you know for you know my case i i tend to make them with as many you know local ingredients as possible so it's also very representative of where i'm from 
And I found it's, um, you know, it's a really wonderful gift to give during harvest season or um, I usually make things uh, throughout the year and then and then save them all up for Christmas time. And I know my grandmother who's, you know, she doesn't need any more canned goods, but she um, she loves to get them from me just because, you know, she knows that it's something that we kind of did together, even though we weren't together. And this is an important thing for the holidays. I Last year, I did uh, some homemade roasted garlic oil. This was a project that I took on with my with my kids. And we roasted like pounds of fresh garlic and we bottled it in really lovely bottles and made these cute tags. And, you know, I can't tell you the response that we had from people. You know, it wasn't that it was a, a particularly lavish gift, but it was one that was from the heart. And I think that's really what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. It is from the heart. It's also, I think it's so important um, to think too about how we're keeping these traditions alive. And I think people recognize that because, you know, what's more and, you know, useful, important, valuable to us now, but it's, it's time. And, you know, so often we don't have the time to to spend hours and hours because honestly, you know, as you know, these things can take a really long time to spend all these hours um, making something. And so it's, you know, it's a really valuable gift, I think. And um, yeah, and something that people can say, wow, I'm, I'm not going to, maybe I'll never have this again. But, um, you know, it's it's something that someone gave to me that they made right now with what they had. It's a, it's a powerful thing. It is. It is. And, and, and it's about giving love and giving an experience, which Dan Pashman and I were talking about in, in, in the prior segment. Let's talk a little bit about um, honoring but not romanticizing food <laughs> traditions, because this is interesting. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I definitely came to these traditions um, romanticizing them. I was like, oh, you know, this is something that my grandmother, she put in all this love. And yes, she did, of course. It was something that she did to provide for her family, and she loves us dearly. But, um, you know, these were also, you know, she didn't prefer to do this. <laughs> of course, she finds a lot of joy in it. And even now, I love it. She, um, she, she will still make these goods, even though she doesn't have to anymore. So she, she does find um, joy um, in, in still making these things, but, you know, not at the, um, the amount of time and energy it took, um, especially when she was raising five kids. And so when you think back and I want them to connect with her at first, I realized, Oh, I'm doing this just like grandma used to do. And then I realized, no, she, you know, she had to make such a huge quantity and life was just not the same then. I don't want to romanticize this time when she was really just, you know, trying to make ends meet the very best that she could. And so when I, also, when I did that, I kind of took the pressure off myself where I didn't have to have everything that was absolutely local. And I was able to just find joy in making these things instead of, um, you know, instead of just pressuring myself to make as many as possible to feed myself as much as possible. And I think that was really important because now I can make them with love. And, um, you know, I make the things that really make me happy and that I think other people will enjoy. And, um, and I think that's what my grandmother definitely would have wanted. Let's talk a little bit about challenges faced by the the foodie entrepreneurship world because you know this is a burgeoning concern. There are thousands of farmers markets across the country and this is where you see um new purveyors showing up testing their wares, but yet it's a challenge to get these products really out into the marketplace. 
No, it's true. Um, when I was doing research for my book, um, I also had this romantic notion when I first started. I was like, oh, here are these people who created jam in their kitchen. And then it just got so big that they just had to create more. And then I realized that's just silly. These people came to their business very well informed. Um, this was something that they maybe switched careers to make this, um, you know, this intention to, to start this new business. Many of them came from um, business backgrounds or from other professional backgrounds. And um, and they came in with a business plan and they, um, yeah, they really thought about what they were doing in, um, in a business way, not just a making a product kind of way. And, um, and yeah, so I thought that that was, that was amazing when I realized that. And, um, and then I think that these people, they also, we have so many more, uh, regulations nowadays that they have to, um, they have to pay attention to. Although I will say that most um, most of the the producers they said that they were happy those regulations were there. Um, that means that they knew that their customers had um, had faith in their product. That they they weren't just you know off some out of some dirty kitchen. They knew that they were safe. Um, they were well made and they were made using you know integrity. And so for the most part, even though those can be kind of difficult, and for some people they've tripped them up. Um, by and large, it's something that they actually embrace. So um, so yeah, it can be difficult. And then of course you just are, you know, going into an increasingly uh, crowded marketplace where your product really has to be unique or has to be better or has to be cheaper or something like that in order to make people want to um, want to spend their money on it because these things can be expensive, rightfully so, because it takes so much energy to make them and they're often made with superior ingredients. But um, but still, yeah, it's a very it's a difficult world out there, and I think it's getting tougher even um, in the last couple of years since I did my research. Um, we're going to go to a break, but before we do, I, I just want to share a success story in my local farmer's market in Malibu. There was a guy who's for years has been making Af uh, Afghanistanian food and he makes these amazing food products and these little, they're like flatbreads that are stuffed with either lentils or spinach or pumpkin and they're called bolanis. Last year, I walked into my local Costco and saw that Mr. Bolani, and I'm making it up because I don't know his name, was in Costco. And I was so happy for this guy, you know, that it was like a dream come true. It's something that he worked his butt off for. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then in order for him to, um, to scale up, though, that was probably a challenge. But um, it looks like it sounds like he was up for the challenge. So that's I think he was. <laughs> I think he was prepared and ready. But to learn more about you, because we are talking about you before we go to the break, to learn more about Suzanne Cope, please go to locavoreinthecity.com. On Facebook, the page is Small Batch Book. And on Twitter, that handle is at city. Oh, no, sorry, let me correct that. At Locavore in City, there's no the. Locavore in City on Twitter. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Harvest more happiness by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Lisa Cypress-Kamen author of Got Happiness Now, is also a prestigious TEDx presenter. Her talks, The Mysteries of Fear and the Inversion Theory of Joy, can be found online at TED.com and on the Harvesting Happiness YouTube channel. 
part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the medical center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. Check out the critically acclaimed documentary film, H-Factor, Where is Your Heart? An insightful visual journey from Lisa Cypress-Kamen, showing that every person possesses the means to be happy. Follow Lisa and her nine-year-old daughter, Kayla, as they travel the world on the hunt for the universal keys to human happiness. Their question? What makes you happy? Discover the origins of human happiness, where to find it, create it, and keep it. Find it in our shop at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, the show dedicated to promoting happiness from the inside out by thriving with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. So let's get back to the show and your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. We are talking with Suzanne Cope about food, artisanal small batch cooking, gifting, and her new cookbook. Suzanne, you're working on a new book about Cuban food culture. Tell us a little bit about it. Sure. It's called Cuba Obscura, and um, it's actually stories from around Cuba. I went to Cuba uh, last March, and I had um, as soon as I heard that they were they were changing the rules and it would be easier to go, I just knew that I had to go right away. I had long wanted to go and, um, and really look at, I mean, I wanted to go anyway, but um, more recently, I had been interested in, in food culture around the world, and I really wondered what was happening with the food culture there, since I knew that um, during the special period after um, the fall of the Soviet Union that, um, you know, there had been issues with food security, and I knew that they were, um, you know, being really re- resourceful and amazing, um, creating urban gardens and um, and learning, actually learning how to create small batch food um, in order to feed themselves again. And so I traveled there, and I did a bunch of research and met some amazing people, um, and just had a much um, fuller uh, picture of food culture in in Cuba. And, um, and I have so much more to learn for sure. So I I have a book out, um, that I am, you know, hoping to find a home for it because I I just started, uh, uh, I just started putting it out into the world, um, to get representation, to find a book, but I'm very excited about it. And there are other people out there in the publishing world who are excited about it. So hopefully I will be able to have some good news soon. And the book name once again is go for it. Cuba Obscura. Love this name. Very, very, very cool. Let's move back to the subject of uh, of food entrepreneurship and working to preserve food traditions with a focus on sustainability, because this is very, very important, especially in some of the larger global movements, such as slow food. This is big. Exactly. Um, you know, it's the word sustainability, everyone 
has their different um, interpretations about <laughs> what it is. But, um, you know, for me, the most basic thinking is that we're trying to eat as kindly um, upon the earth as possible. Um, and we're also, but also taking into account that not everyone can afford, you know, small batch food or, you know, or vegetables from this, you know, special local garden that um, sometimes we do have to buy into the industrial food system. So I do believe that sustainability also um, nods to as many people as possible participating in eating as healthfully as possible and as environmentally friendly as possible. And so, um, you know, what's so great, especially about living in New York and before that about living in Boston is there was a lot of, um, there were a lot of farmer's markets and it really, of course you could buy the wonderful high-end um, produce and the high-end products, but you also could find great deals there too. And um, where I am in New York now, there is Grow NYC um, is an organization that is providing um, fresh, mostly local uh, boxes of, you know, it's kind of like a CSA uh, to people for a very low cost. And so I take part in that as often as possible. And, um, and yeah, it's just very important to think about, you know, what's going to be there, you know, when my kid is growing up. And I think about that a lot. And sometimes it makes me very nervous and sad, but more often than not, I feel hopeful. And um, yeah, I hope that I'm part of the solution. Well, I think this is this really speaks to what those people who are in this food movement, the smart food movement, the slow food movement, the conscious slow food movement, whatever you want to call it, is all about bringing people's awareness to the of our need to pay attention to the food sources, to eat as locally and as fresh as possible, just to also sustain the local economy. I live in an agricultural area and for me, one of the greatest treats is being able to eat what's grown here. As I drive through the fields, I know that that kale or that cabbage or those carrots are going to end up on my table. That's pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. And that's and that. What else is cool too is that it's not that different here in New York. Is that um, you know there's they've created uh, really great systems where we're hooked up to with a lot of. Um, a lot of farms, both in the Hudson Valley, but also in Connecticut and, and a lot in New Jersey too, where we're getting amazing produce uh, all the time. And in fact, um, yeah, I'm, I'm cooking some cabbage right now and it smells amazing. <laughs> mm. um, let's talk about the spirit of coopetition. <laughs> I like that word. <laughs> yes, I give Michaela Hayes, she has, um, you know, she coined that word, at least in my, in my uh, knowledge that it was all Michaela Hayes of um, Crock and Jar uh, Pickles. Uh, so she, I met with her um, early in my research for the book, and um, and she was just so great and so generous to share her experience talking about um, talking about her starting her um, starting her business, Crock and Jar, and um, and then I had also not um, not long afterwards, I had also met with um, Seamus Jones who um, who started Brooklyn Brine Pickles, and he's since totally exploded. Um, he was on his way to exploding when I met him, but um, you know he's definitely a big wig in the pickle world now. And, um, and both of them mentioned how they had worked. Um, Seamus was around before, before Michaela and how he had given Michaela a lot of, um, a lot of advice. And Michaela said, and I I was just a little amazed. I thought there would be more of, um, you know, proprietary information and people wanting to be more competitive. And she said, no, we have the spirit of coopetition where, you know, we want to work together. We want to help each other. And then Seamus echoed the same thing. He said, yeah, no one wants to be the only, the only pickle guy on the block. You know, we want, 
other people to know that that pickles are for everyone, that there's different kinds of pickles, that, um, yeah, <laughs> we're not weird. We're, we're, we're all, this is, this should be part of your everyday life is saying, Hey, there's a high end pickle that we could eat a really fresh, crunchy pickle. And so, um, I heard that again and again. And then when I went to the West coast, um, talking to a bunch of distillers in the um, Portland, Oregon area, and then I heard they, um, one of the distillers called it cooperation, but it was the exact same idea. It's like, yeah, we work together. We, of course, we, you know, we're in competition technically, but it's more, we want everyone to succeed. And I just thought that was such a cool idea. And I, I saw it again and again. Um, and I was like, yeah, why, why does the world work like that? <laughs> well, maybe it's beginning to, you know, it's like, you know, the change starts with each one of us and how we decide to conduct ourselves in business, how we decide to either help one another or fight with one another really creates the the community of the future. And that's why this conscious food movement is so important. You know, I can't emphasize it enough when I do shows like this because it really speaks to the climate in which we want to live and raise our families. Yeah, exactly. And it's not just thinking, oh, how do we all, how do just the small batch people work together? But when you start to think, um, you know, all from where it's grown up until, you know, the end, the end eater, um, you know, if there is co-opetition among, between all of those uh, people, then we're not trying to, you know, get every last dollar out of our farmer. You know, we're trying to work with them, cooperate with them so that the, the end eater gets something that's really great and gets it at a price that's fair. And um, although, you know, farmers are definitely not the ones, at least small farmers are not the ones who are raking in and trying to, you know, stiff everyone on every last dollar. It's, you know, it's a tough world out there. But, um, but I think a lot of people are doing really great things. They are. And this really, this this current craft food revolution, as you call it, is, is interesting in that um, it is is a throwback. What am I trying to say here? It's a throwback to an earlier time, how the, the counterculture movement of the 60s and 70s might have something to do with what we're experiencing now. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. I I do think that, um, you know, even though we, we said earlier, we're not, you know, don't romanticize the past. I think that there are a lot of people who are coming to these um, older traditions, but with a very modern perspective. And, um, you know, a lot of the people, they, um, the, a lot of the small batch producers, they want to work with their hands and they see this as, um, as a place where they can do that, where they can feel like they've actually produced something at the end of the day, where they've produced something where they've, um, they know the farmers and they, you know, oftentimes even know the people who are buying it and, um, or know the distributors. So, um, yeah, I think that there's a lot of people who are trying to change the world, you know, one jar of pickles at a time. And, and um, who are trying to just do something that they see as being, um, yeah, something that makes them happy, something that's um, just a, a, a adding value to the world. Um, and, you know, the one thing that I think is difficult is that um, it's still not accessible to, you know, people of, of all, um, you know, at all price points. But I... Um, Michaela Hayes, for one, she's someone who really is uh, trying to teach as many people as possible to do this themselves. And um, and so I saw a lot of people, too, who in that same spirit of cooperation, they're saying, oh, I don't I'm not taking. In fact, I asked Michaela Hayes this. I'm like, oh, aren't you, you know, in, co in competition with yourself when you do that? You're creating people who can make the things that you can make. And she said, you know, no, because they're. People are understanding how much effort goes into it. They're placing value upon what I'm doing. And I think that's what so many of these people are doing. They're saying this is an important thing to bring into the future. Um, it's not that we're just honoring the past, but we're looking ahead and we're saying we need to know what the, you know how to do this. We need to know how to you know eat these foods and 
yeah, so people really are looking looking forward and, and trying to share this knowledge, I think, as much as possible. We are almost out of time, and I want to know what is going to be cooking in Suzanne Cope's kitchen for the holiday season. <laughs> well, we're having this great Friends Thanksgiving. I'm so excited. Our, our dear neighbors, um, a couple blocks away, and uh, our kids uh, go to the same daycare, and we get together off. So I am making a savory sweet potato crisp with bacon um, bacon crumbles on top, and also making a um, a salted dark chocolate pumpkin pie. And Ooh. these are two um, recipes that I kind of invented, which I don't invent that many um, bake, baked goods. I'm not really a baker, but, um, but yeah, they turned out good uh, once or twice. So I'm going for lucky number three. <laughs> are those going to be listed on your website? Are those going to be shown there? I don't know. Maybe, maybe I will. Oh, maybe you should. <laughs> At which website or both will you put them on? Um, if I did put them on my website, it would be on, um, it would be on Locavore in the city. Yeah. Fantastic. So this is for the, tell us again the names of those two recipes. Um, so one is savory sweet potato crisp, and the other one will be a dark chocolate salted pumpkin pie. Oh, that, that sounds absolutely scrumptious. And what about gifting? Are you going to be making any small batches to gift? I've already made some things. I um, I made some two different kinds of applesauce, um, and that was when uh, the plums. I made apple plum sauce when the plums were in season. I just caught it at the end of the season in applesauce. And um, and what else do I have in my jar in my cupboard? I've been making it all season long. So um, so yeah, I've been making a couple different things. I'll have to. Oh, I know what else I'm making. I'm making um, apple skin uh, whiskey. I didn't distill it, but I'm I'm infusing it. Wow. With in of the apples from um, that I made the applesauce with. So those are two things that people will be getting this Christmas. Sounds absolutely delicious. We are out of time, and I want to thank you for being with us on the show and wish you a happy, joyous, peaceful, loving holiday season. To learn more, please visit locavoreinthecity.com on Facebook, Small Batch Book, and the Twitter handle is at locavoreinthecity.com. City. And here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen and my amazing guest today. Suzanne Cope and Dan Pashman wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. And a quick shout out of thanks to our producers who make us shine each and every week. We appreciate you. Go out and make it a good one. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new broadcast and continue to harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on iTunes and SoundCloud. To learn more about Lisa's global practice as an applied positive psychology coach specializing in lifestyle management as well as addiction and trauma recovery services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness.